0: I would invite you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 1, and we'll read verses 9 through 20, so we'll finish reading Revelation chapter 1, but we will only look at three verses, verses 9 through 11 tonight. So having now looked at the prologue of the book of Revelation, we now come to the circumstances that have led John to receive this revelation and then to write down the revelation in which he sees and send it to the seven churches that are in Asia. And this section of chapter one can be broken down into four more subsections. So first, which we'll look at tonight, in verses nine through 11, John reveals that he is writing in exile from the island Patmos, which is in the Aegean Sea. Uh, And this is where he received this revelation, where he writes this revelation down and he sends it to the seven churches. Second, John reveals in verses 12 through 16 that the voice he heard was that of the glorious Son of Man, that of Jesus Christ. Third, we see a common motif that is common to this type of vision in verses 17 and 18, which is when John sees Jesus, he falls to the ground like a dead man in fear, and Jesus responds to him, Do not fear. And fourthly, in verses 19 and 20, John is commanded to write about what he has seen. And he is given the meaning of the seven stars in the seven lampstands. Now lastly, as we will see, not this week, but in the coming weeks, There is much imagery that John employs in this chapter, and it's drawn from the book of Daniel, specifically chapter 7 and 10, and we'll see that as we make our way through the rest of this chapter in the weeks to come. But that's a breakdown of it, so you have an understanding when we read it here, that you know what is coming and what it is saying. So with that, let us now turn to the Word of God. Revelation 1, beginning in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Theotera and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars, that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, whom have we in heaven but you? And To whom shall we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. Therefore we come to your scriptures now seeking these words of eternal life. So give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind to understand, a heart to believe, and your spirit to obey. Guide us with your counsel tonight, O Lord. Amen. Amen. So, in this section, we see the author identify himself by name. He is John. And that name should be familiar to us, for this is the Apostle John the disciple in whom Jesus loved, the only disciple that watched Jesus die upon the cross, the disciple who beat Peter to the tomb, the author of the fourth gospel, and the author of the three Johann epistles. But notice that he doesn't focus on his apostolic ministry or his apostolic authority, but rather he emphasizes his equality and his solidarity with those to whom he writes. So he says, I, John, and then he first identifies himself as their brother. I, John, your brother. That is, he is their fellow believer. You see, when it comes to the cross of Christ and when it comes to his throne, the ground is level. There is no one greater than the other, but rather we are all equal in Christ. And so he looks at the churches he is writing to and he says, brothers, sisters. So he is a fellow believer and a fellow child of God. And so he has this familial bond with his readers as all of them are a part of the family of God. And so that's how he chooses to identify himself first all of them being heirs and co-heirs with Christ, brothers and sisters as children of God. Secondly, then, he identifies himself as their partner. That is, they share in the same sorrows and joys together. He is their partner first in the tribulation, that is, the persecution and suffering of believers, which includes slander, Poverty. Imprisonment. Discrimination. Social ostracism. Physical abuse. And for some even death. He shares in that tribulation with them. Because as for John. He was. Exiled. And banished to a small island. Of Patmos. In the Aegean Sea. It was a essentially a prison and so notice John's language here he is their partner in the tribulation now often you will hear dispensationalists talk about the coming great tribulation and thus they identify themselves as pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib meaning God will have the secret secret rapture of his people or take them out of this world before, during, or after the tribulation. Now, that concept is foreign to the Apostle John for two reasons. First, dispensational eschatology was invented wasn't invented until the nineteenth century. So this way of thinking, this way of interpreting the book of Revelation is only about two hundred years old. And I follow the The saying, if it's new, it isn't isn't true. So it doesn't go back to the time of the apostles. Secondly, John says he is a partaker in the tribulation. Therefore, it's not a coming time of great persecution. Rather, the time of persecution is already here and will continue until Christ returns. So it would be wise to reject this framework, though I guess technically... If you are asked, you could tell someone that we are post-trib since we believe the tribulation is synonymous with this present age. It's easy to think past this as American Christians because you know, we don't really face that much persecution in our world. But think about our brothers and sisters who die for their faith presently today. Think about our brothers and sisters where their government breaks in arrests them, and throws them in jail, all for worshiping Jesus. They would say that they are facing the tribulation Amen. now. So it's synonymous with this present age. So as we go forward, you will see that all of this has application to the first century church. It has application to the church of the fathers, the church fathers. It has application to the medieval church church to the Reformation Church, and to the 21st century church. But John currently suffers in this tribulation as an exile away from his people, away from the people of God, on this prison island of Patmos. The exile was seen as a death sentence. It was life imprisonment on a remote island in the middle of the sea where they sent John to die. And it is presumed that he was sent there because of his proclamation of the gospel and his apostolic work throughout the Roman Empire. And John says as much, he is on Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, we know this to be true as well. You can go to the book of Acts and what happens to Peter and John and the other apostles. They are beaten and they suffer for proclaiming Christ. Now, interestingly enough, it is believed that uh, according to tradition that John, they tried to kill John before. Um, They tried to boil him alive. And by divine intervention, he uh, escaped. So they send him to the island of Patmos. After the emperor dies, Domitian dies, uh, John returns to Ephesus where he pastors until and while he's pastoring there, they try to kill him by forcing him to drink poison uh, and he survives that as well. Now this is all tradition. It's not recorded in scripture but uh, that is the history of the church and then he dies there. So... He suffers his whole life. Um, He's a martyr in spirit, though he does not die for Christ. But this idea of suffering for Christ and his gospel is a theme that runs throughout the book of Revelation. John will commend the church in Philadelphia for holding fast to God's word and a culture that opposes its message in chapter 3, verses 8 and 10. So if you flip over there quickly, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you. From the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Notice there, what? Patient endurance. And, Paul, and John says that he is a partner in the patient endurance. Also in chapter 6-9, we read about the martyrs who are under the altar in heaven, who were put to death on account of God's word. They cry out to God, when are you going to avenge us? And God does. And in chapter 20, verse 4, there are those who were beheaded and deprived of life because of their testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. So John and his readers suffer because of their belief in and their allegiance to Jesus and his word. And we have brothers and sisters today who suffer and die because of Jesus and his word. That's why I love the story of Jim Elliot. He's a young guy, 26 years old. He has a young daughter, he has a young wife. And he goes out and he preaches, and as he's preaching, he dies. He's murdered by the people he's preaching to. And he wrote in his journal shortly before his death, he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I love that. And that is so true of all of the saints who have died for the faith throughout the centuries. But this testimony that brings about their suffering and deaths is also the means by which They conquer Satan, according to 12.11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And yet we see here now the reverse of that in Revelation They loved not their lives, even unto death. Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. Join the death march. Die to self, live to Christ. But John is not only their partner in the tribulation, he is also their partner in the coming kingdom and in the present kingdom. Again, notice that it's a present reality to be a member of Christ's kingdom. Therefore, John, and the first century church, the kingdom was a present reality just as it is in the 21st century church. And this is another theme that will run throughout the book of Revelation. All Christians are members of the kingdom presently and will reign with Jesus when he comes again and establishes his, his eternal kingdom. In its fullness. It's a, pre, it's a reality that is both now and not yet. We see this uh, typified in 1 Samuel. Think about 1 Samuel 16 and 17. David is anointed as king and the spirit of Yahweh rushes upon him and is with him from that day forward. The very next verse then says the spirit of Yahweh departs Saul And God sends a tormenting spirit upon him. So you have a spiritual transition of the kingdoms, but not a physical one yet. Chapter 17, you have a transitioning of the champion of Israel. Saul will not go fight Goliath. David does. And he wins the battle. And then, but what you see is he's been anointed king, but he's not king yet. But his kingdom is coming. And then finally, you get to chapter 2, and his kingdom is here. But at the the end of uh, 2 Samuel, we're left wanting a more godly king. And who is that more godly king we want? But Jesus. But it typifies Jesus' kingdom. It's now, he is king, he's been coronated as king at his ascension, and yet we're still waiting for him to establish the kingdom in full Therefore, John's suffering and the church's suffering and our suffering is not pointless. While we are members of the kingdom now, we are called to endure this present age so that we will enjoy the kingdom in its fullness in the age to come. This is why Paul says in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us how beautiful is that passage no matter how much you suffer in this life it is not worth comparing to the future glory we have in Christ Jesus so we suffer in this life knowing that the kingdom of Christ will come in its fullness but here in Revelation 1.9 John is giving us the thesis statement that drives the whole book of Revelation Believers are called to endure until the end to receive the coming kingdom. And remember, this isn't John writing to his readers from a place of ease and privilege. He's not in an ivory tower. He's not living in luxury. He is serving out a life sentence on a prison island, exiled from the people of God. So he's not writing to them from a place of ease. He's writing to them from a place of suffering. He shares in their tribulation. And he shares with them in the kingdom of God. He knows firsthand what it means to suffer for Christ and for the sake of Christ's gospel. He is therefore a partner with them in their endurance as he himself is enduring persecution with them waiting for their coming king. So the affliction, kingdom, and endurance are all theirs in Jesus because they are united with Jesus as those who have been freed from their sins and made kings and priests. Hebrews tells us that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our sins. We have a high priest who can sympathize with us yet without sin. How beautiful of a passage is that? Jesus understands what it means to be tempted. He understands what it means to suffer under persecution. He knows what it means to go and die a death he did not deserve. He can sympathize with us. And so, suffer waiting for the kingdom of God then in verse 10 the apostle John tells us how he received this revelation so he begins I was in the spirit now to be clear John is not using this phrase the way that Paul uses it in his letters When Paul says, in the Spirit, what Paul means is living by the power of the Spirit rather than by the power of the flesh. Think Romans 8. If you would flip with me there real quick, we'll see it. Romans 8, um, verse 1. are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That's what Paul means by in the spirit. Being empowered to live for Christ. And that meaning is probably true of John here as well. But that's not what John is focusing on. Rather, when John uses this phrase in the book of Revelation, in the spirit, he uses it at certain key points in the book of Revelation to indicate where the spirit animates John to prophesy as the Old Testament prophets prophesied. We see this in the Gospel of Luke as well. We see it when um, Elizabeth speaks. We see it when Mary speaks. We see it when Zechariah speaks. We saw it when Simeon spoke. So being in the Spirit here is meant to indicate when John was receiving revelation from God by his Spirit, And therefore, because this book is a revelation from God, it is authoritative, for John was inspired by the Spirit in what he wrote. And this is what both Paul and Peter meant in their writings when referring to the divine origin of Scripture. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, I'm sure you all know this well, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. So all Scripture... From Genesis to Revelation, all scripture is breathed out by God. Whereas Peter says in 2 Peter 1:21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that is to say, the book of Revelation does not originate in John. But it comes by way of the Holy Spirit. And since it is breathed out first by God, it is authoritative, it is infallible, it is inerrant, and it's profitable for the life of believers. Hence the blessing that John gives in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, And blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. How can it be a blessing? Because it is from God. It is God-breathed, and John wrote as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, John tells us that uh, he received this revelation on the Lord's Day. Now, that's an important term for us, for that's what we call the Christian Sabbath. And the Greek here is Ha Kyriakai hemera. It's not important to you. I just think it's a really cool phrasing because this is the only place in the New Testament where that phrase occurs. But it is most certainly referring to Sunday, the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. All four Gospels note that Jesus rose on the first day of the week, which was what? Sunday? And this event was significant for the church as it moved Old Testament Sabbath observance from Saturday to New Testament observance on Sunday. Now, you guys know this. Church people are a crazy bunch about tradition. You do it once, and it's a tradition. You do it twice, and it's set in stone. So they have thousands of years of worshiping on Saturday, and then all of a sudden, they start worshiping on Sunday. What must have happened for them to switch the days that they worship on? Except the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A new creation was coming in Jesus. So the reason for the change of day is precisely because of Christ's resurrection, which was inaugurating the coming of the new creation. So we, uh, as... Theologians, but we worship on the eighth day, the day of new creation. Furthermore, Acts 20 verse 7 instructs us that the church broke bread on the first day of the week, meaning they observed the sacrament and ordinance of the Lord's Supper on Sunday, the day that the Lord rose from the dead. Paul exhorts the church in Corinth to set aside money on the first day of the week, presumably gathering their offerings uh, in 1 Corinthians 16.2 on the day that they worship. So the New Testament makes clear that Christians began observing Sabbath worship on Sunday. And our confession and our catechism tell us as much. What is the Christian Sabbath? Sunday, the Lord's day, the day that he rose. Now being exiled, John was deprived of meeting with his brothers and sisters. So and we read in Hebrews, do not neglect the assembly of the saints. And John wasn't neglecting it, but he was exiled from them. Therefore, he could not come gather with the saints and worship God with them. But it just so happens that it was on the Lord's day that the Lord spoke to him directly. I mean, is this not what we long for? the day where we will no longer have to listen to my poor, lisping, stammering tongue proclaiming the excellencies of Christ, but rather we get to hear the word of God from the word of God himself, Jesus Christ. But John is worshiping him in spirit and truth on the Lord's day, and then he hears a mighty voice. So John says he heard behind him a loud voice like that of a trumpet. Now, the imagery of a trumpet alludes to when Yahweh revealed himself to Israel on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. So if you look at Exodus 19, beginning in verse 17, it says, Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like smoke of a kill. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. So it's drawing on that imagery And we will continue to see this trumpet imagery throughout the book of Revelation. So likewise, here in Revelation, the Lord is revealing himself to John, just as God revealed himself to Moses on that mountain. So he gives John his word on this island. So as on the Lord's day, in the spirit, he hears God speak and we read the words that were spoken by Jesus to John on this particular Lord's Day. Verse 11. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, Theatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, to Laodicea. So we've already discussed Paul and Peter's view on scripture. And discuss John's view on Scripture, but what about the view of Jesus on Scripture? In being asked about marriage in the resurrection, Jesus responds to the Sadducees by retorting in Matthew twenty-two twenty-one: "Have you not read what was said to you by God?" Interesting phrase there, because you read what is written and you hear. What is said. But Jesus said, Have you not read what was said to you? Jesus' view is that the written word of God is equal to the spoken word of God. That is, the scriptures are the recorded spoken words of God to his people. That's why Paul can say all scripture is breathed out by God. So when we come to the scriptures and we read it, We are reading as though God is speaking to us. So as I have often said, when people say, I just want to hear from God. Okay, open your Bible and read it out loud. Open the ESV app on your phone and hit play. As you hear the word of God read out loud, you will hear the words of God spoken to you. Now, in verse 11, John is commanded to write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Again, the writing down of the message demonstrates the book's authoritative nature in the life of the church. And this draws upon a motif and commands throughout the Old Testament as well. In Exodus 17, 14, the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. And I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So we see with Moses, Moses is commanded to write these things down. Deuteronomy 17, 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, Speaking about a coming king, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priest. So every time a new king came, it was his responsibility to then write down the first uh, five books of Moses by hand, that he would have a copy of God's law. The Levitical priest will look it over to make sure he made no mistakes. And he was to study that daily, that he would rule over God's people and justice, and equity. Isaiah 38, And now go, write it before them on a tablet, and ascribe it in a book, that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. God's word is a witness to us forever. I love the song. I love to tell the story. Because you know how it ends? They're in heaven singing the same old story that they have told their entire life the gospel will be the song that we sing in heaven we will be reminded of our sin and how it was forgiven by the lamb who was slain we will look to christ and we will say we don't deserve to be here but here we are because of him who was slain on our behalf and we will remember the graciousness of our god to save us from our sins and his word will be a testimony forever. The world will pass away, but the word of God will stand forever. Yeah. Finally, Jeremiah thirty-six verse two: Take a scroll and write it, and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations, from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah until today. So again, we see another prophet, the prophet Jeremiah, commanded by God to write down his judgments against Israel and Judah and all the other nations. And thus, we have them. We have the book of Jeremiah written down that stands as a testimony. And so here, John also writes down the words of the Revelation. And the cities that he is to write to are listed in the same order in which Jesus addresses them in the next two chapters, in chapters two and three. He is to write to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Theotira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, I'm not going to give you their backgrounds. We'll do that when we write or we examine what Jesus says to them. But just so you know, the order in which they appear in the letter also reflects the route a courier would take to deliver this book to the seven churches. So Ephesus was on the coast. Patmos is in the middle of the GNC. So he would write this book. A courier would take it from Patmos to Ephesus. And then from Ephesus, the courier would essentially take a route that would be a circle from Ephesus to and end in Laodicea so Ephesus is on the coast and the cities are all in the circle so beginning in Ephesus they would go from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum to Theotira to Sardis to Philadelphia and finally to Laodicea before they could come back to Ephesus so again we are reminded that this book wasn't just written to the future church but to a present and specific church in the first century It was written to seven physical churches. So, what John has to say to them is relevant to them at that present time. But it's also relevant and applicable to the modern church as well. So, in this message, John identifies himself as a brother, he identifies himself as a partner with the churches to whom he is writing. He tells us from where he is writing and he tells us from whom this message comes. And finally, he tells us who the message is for. The seven churches of Asia. And by proxy, with him writing to seven churches, it also tells us that he is writing to every church, the universal church, throughout all places and all times. So it's also written to us. So John isn't just thinking about these seven churches. Jesus isn't just speaking to these seven churches alone. He's speaking to his church, his bride, his body throughout all time and all places. So he's speaking to the elect who will worship and glorify him forever and ever in his eternal kingdom. With that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Revelation. We thank you for this time in which we get to slowly study through it. And Father, we uh, thank you for these three verses that we have studied here tonight. We thank you for the Apostle John, who is a martyr in spirit, but not in action. And Father, we thank you that he would be our brother in Christ and that he is our partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom, and in our patient endurance are are in Jesus. We thank you that he suffered through his exile, and while he was in exile on the Lord's day, and in the spirit, you gave him this revelation that was written to us, that we may believe, that we may have hope, and that we will look forward to your return and to the establishment of your eternal kingdom where we shall rule and reign with you as a kingdom of priests forever and ever. We thank you for the high priest who sympathizes with us and yet is without sin. We thank you that he has saved us from our sin and that he has made us worthy to be in your kingdom. And so we pray with John, come Lord Jesus, come. We love you. And we long for the day in which we will be with you for eternity. I pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Love you guys.